following program is brought to you in living color. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. My guest is Dean Slider. 
He's a literature professor, meditation teacher, and the author of numerous books, including Why the Chicken Crossed the Road and Other Hidden Enlightenment Teachings, The Zen Commandments, Cinema Nirvana, Natural Meditation, and Fear Less. And his new book that we'll be talking about is The Dharma Bum's Guide to Literature. So, Dean, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks so much, Tonio. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I enjoyed the book a lot. Oh, good. Thank you. I enjoyed writing it. I have had a whole lot of fun writing this one. And I have to confess that most of the things in the book I did not actually read. I was a bit of a rebel when it came to what I chose to read. And I also dropped out of college during my first semester at UC Boulder. Mm -hmm back in 76. And I was very fortunate to have a really wonderful literature professor. And at the same time, I also fell in love with the writings of Chuang Tzu. Mm -hmm. And then I quickly realized that academics and the college path was not for me. So I, I ended up hitchhiking out to California. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I would love for you to talk about your experience with this character that you encountered early in your journey that you or who referred to himself as Uncle John and yeah. and the kind of effect he had on on you and the course that set you on. Right. So, yes, Uncle John was John Friesius. He was my 10th grade English teacher at, at Van Nuys High School, and he was the person who showed me that words could open up into fathomless depths. He was a he was a, an incredible character. He was just a, a complete wild man with a big gut and a prematurely gray crew cut. He wore these cheap white dress shirts with two breast pockets and always a pack of Tarrytons in each one. He had gone straight from high school into combat in World War II, so he, he was completely fearless. He swore a lot. He was very dedicated to just challenging everybody's orthodoxy. The local ministers had pressured the school board several times to get rid of him, and he would read poetry with such passion. His voice, when he read poetry, he went into his Laurence Olivier mode, but with little asides that were Groucho Marx. And he was clearly having the best time in the world. And I saw that. And well, two things. One was, oh, my God, literature is this incredible gateway into just all these highs and lows of human experience. But number two was, this is what I want to do. I want to be Uncle John and yada, yada, yada. Let's see, 11, 12 years after I graduated from high school, I wound up with a job teaching English at a fancy prep school in New Jersey where I became Uncle Dean. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. And I look forward to, to hearing you read during our conversation. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, just try and stop me. <laughs> good, I, I won't. I'll, I encourage you to take every opportunity to do that. So let's talk about the aim of this book and why you wrote it and chose to focus on literature as your vehicle. 
Right. Now, I, I need to point out when, when you uh, gave the title of the book, you, you left out one word. This is the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. And that's that's important because and, and I, I make the point in the introduction, Eastern literature obviously is full of books that unfold the Dharma, the Dharma meaning the path of awakening. And they pretty well speak for themselves. They don't need my help. But what is less obvious is that the classics of Western literature, Huckleberry Finn, The Great Gatsby, Moby Dick, the works of Toni Morrison, the works of Virginia Woolf, those works, not intentionally, but inevitably, they unfold the Dharma as well. Why? Because the Dharma, meditation, spirituality, awakening, what it's supposed to awaken us to is the infinite. And if the infinite is the infinite, it's got to be everywhere. Otherwise, it ain't the infinite. So I do include some authors who were consciously, overtly, and, and usually passionately on the spiritual path, who had had experiences of awakening and wrote about them and pursued them. People like William Blake, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Gerard Manley Hopkins. And so, uh, yeah, they've got to be in there. But then also, I just had a grand time having Mark Twain and Virginia Woolf. And then just to kind of mix things up, a few works that we might not necessarily think of as classics of Western literature, like Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma and Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. Yeah, that was interesting that you added Theodore Geisel and mm -hmm. The Cat in the Hat. So since you began with William Blake, maybe we could begin with him and talk about his inner experience and how he wrote about it, and also how he tried to come to terms with all of that in relation to the way he saw the world around him. Yeah, well, Blake was a born visionary. Blake, when he was four years old, and I talk about this in the book, one night his parents came running into his bedroom. He was screaming, and he had seen God leaning his forehead against the bedroom window. And this kind of life of the, of the spontaneous visionary went on so that he started getting used to seeing angels in trees. And when his brother Robert died, he saw Robert's spirit joyfully rising up through the roof and, and into the sky. And in fact, his brother Robert's spirit continued to guide him through his work for the rest of William's life. So <laughs> not surprisingly, most of his contemporaries considered him a lunatic. And there's even a, a theory that Blake may have been suffering from ergotoxicosis, which is a condition that comes about when you eat rye bread that's been infested with a purple ergot fungus, which is the precursor to LSD. So it's possible that Blake was tripping. <laughs> but, you know, his best stuff, his highest stuff, as I say in the book, it, it, it requires no psychedelic special effects. When he writes, for instance, Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb, and climb here is C-L-I-M-E, means a climate zone place, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin 
shrouded in snow, arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. I mean, oh, that's, that's so universal. We're all the weary sunflowers yearning toward the sun, right? The individual soul spirits yearning toward that bright, glorious, higher something that we know has got to be there. Otherwise, we're just count, you know, weary of time. You get up in the morning, right? Put the bread in the toaster, brush your teeth, go to work, ba ba ba. You know, rinse and repeat until you die. There's got to be more than that, and that's the this glorious sun that the that the sunflower yearns for. But the trick, kind of the 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 joker in the deck, the the wonderful joker in the deck, is that. The word sunflower, the name sunflower, contains the word sun. And a sunflower with the, you know, the brilliant yellow petals radiating from it even looks like a sun. So the implication, I think, is clear, which is that this higher thing that we all yearn for, we in our own essence, are that already. Now, the Eastern teachings all say that, you know, the, the books that I didn't write about, the, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas and what did you read, Chuangsa, right? They all say that, that your inmost being, which you can settle into meditatively, is this, that's the infinite you're looking for. The, the one who seeks is that which is being sought. You just have to settle into it. Now, those works were not available in England in Blake's time, but, you know, it just Apparently, he was a natural. He he was, as I say, a real visionary, and he just saw it. And these writers, they used metaphor, or they used the world as a metaphor for the divine. Yeah, yeah, because the divine is, as my old teacher Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said once to a, a room full of us in where was this? Uh, Fuji, Italy in 1972. He was just grasping for words to describe the divine. And finally he said, it's just nothing, but there's something very good about it. So, so since it's just nothing, it is non-phenomenal beingness, non-phenomenal pure being, pure awareness. But how do you convey that to people so you have to convey it metaphorically so this is why jesus spoke in parables he spoke about mustard seeds and and so forth the kingdom of heaven you know all those sermons that start the kingdom of heaven is like such and such so yes the poets and the novelists do the same thing so here the kingdom of heaven is like a sunflower and william blake also had his admonitions about trying to hold on to to the divine and and the joy of the divine. His line, um, he who binds himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flows lives in eternity's sunrise. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That is about the divine joys, and it's about the worldly joys as, as well. Yeah, trying to hold on to, let's say you have a, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. I've been teaching meditation for God, 50 something years. And one of the big pitfalls that happens is people have one really nice, blissful, 
easeful meditation. And then they start subtly or not so subtly trying to get that back. And in the very act of trying to get that back, they lose the ease, the the effortlessness that allowed them to fall into that that lovely experience in the first place. So that applies to these so-called spiritual or divine experience joys and and worldly joys as well. You know, as I say in the book, as you read this, your favorite shirt is turning into a dust rag. You're losing your hair. The hot guys or girls that you lusted after in high school are putting on weight. <laughs> your your kittens are becoming cats and uh, everyone that you love is dying. You know, that's the bad news. The good news is, as he says, he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise, right? He who kisses the joy as it flies. So don't, you don't have to be a monk. You don't have to renounce the joys, but don't hold on to them either. It's what the Buddha called the golden middle way in between just trying to accumulate everything and trying to push everything away. Don't hold on, don't push away, just in the middle of it all, just be, just be in the middle of it, love it, kiss it as it flies. Mm. You also write, and you alluded to that, how we all crave the infinite, which is a catastrophe when all we have to choose from in this world is the finite and trying to fill that infinite space with finite things in a sort of alchemical process of of turning the infinite creative void into a black hole that just consumes us as we desperately try to fill it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically the, the story of life. That's why that sunflower yearning for the sun is such a powerful metaphor. Very similar, actually, Blake is my first chapter. My second chapter is The Great Gatsby. And the central image of the Great Gatsby is very similar to Blake's sunflower. It's the Gatsby, the very first time we see him through the eyes of the narrator, Nick Carraway. And Gatsby is standing on his grand lawn out under the stars, looking out across the water of Manhasset Bay, actually. In northern, he's in northern Long Island. And his arms are outstretched in this sort of odd gesture of yearning. And Nick says that, you know, even though he was, I think he's 50 yards away, I swear I could see that he was trembling. And Nick looks to see what the arms are outstretched toward, and they're stretched toward a distant green light. Now, later on, we find out that that's the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. And Daisy Buchanan, Nick's cousin, is this woman that Gatsby, who's fabulously wealthy, but he's madly in love with Daisy, and he's convinced that she is his missing piece, that if he can only get her away from her awful husband, Tom, then that will be the solution to life, and everything will be fine. Now, Tonio, if you've ever been in a situation where you convinced yourself that if only I can get up with this person, then that'll be the solution to my life, you know that it's a recipe for disaster. And, you know, the great Gatsby winds up being a tragedy. That yearning, you know, what makes the great Gatsby great is he yearns greatly. And that's why he's such a wonderful kind of exaggerated symbol of the yearning that we all have. And as you say, trying to fill that black hole with anything else, 
experiences, substances. There's just not enough. There's not enough beer to fill <laughs> to fill that up. You know, there's an old Irish saying: "You can drink too much, but you can never drink enough." <laughs> and 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 that's really our situation. It's like it starts off at Christmas, mommy, mommy, Christmas is coming. Please buy me the Barbie doll, or please buy me the GI Joe. That'll be it. I'll never ask for anything again. And then this being America, the land of plenty, most of us got the Barbie or the GI Joe, and it really did seem like it for about a day, you know. And then, oh, mommy, Barbie is lonely. Barbie needs Ken. Barbie needs Skipper. Barbie is Barbie's homeless. She needs the Barbie dream house. You know what's next? What's next? What's next? You know we're the donkey trying to catch up to that carrot, and we never catch up to it. That's the bad news. The good news is that if the donkey would just settle down and be right where he or she is and settle within him or herself, they'll find, oh, what I was looking for is, is right here on the inside. That when the Buddha said, you know, on the outside, it's all samsara, confusion and wandering, and the inside, it's nirvana. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you, we're not fools. They were not liars. It, it's really true. It's really there. And and anyone really can do it. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny irony about this life in a body when, as you write, that we are not really a person, but luminous, aware, open space that has been impersoned. Yeah, I made that one up. I like that word, impersoned. Yeah. Uh, that's in my chapter on the slave narrative of Frederick Douglass. And what I realized when I started contemplating, and I, you know, I taught that for years as a high school teacher, you know, the book is all about Douglass's struggle for liberation to become free from slavery, to escape from the South to the North. And the turning point for him is realizing that he was not a slave, he was a person who had been enslaved. And the key to that for him was to learn to read. It was illegal to teach slaves to read because it, it was very dangerous, for, as we see in, in Douglas's case, it was very dangerous for the white folks that had enslaved them for slaves to become educated. And that gave Douglas the perspective to see, oh, a slave is not inherently what I am. You know, slaves never had birthdays. He never, his whole life, Douglas was never able to learn what his birthday is because, you know, a farming implement doesn't have a birthday. A, a barnyard animal doesn't have a birthday. And that was, that was their status. So the big discovery for him was, Oh, a slave is not what I am. I am not inherently a slave. I am a person who has been enslaved, who has had this externally superimposed condition laid upon me. So that's what's there in the book explicitly. So then what the extra mile that I go with it to, to turn it into a, you know, to kind of take it through the Dharma gate is that the deeper or the higher level of liberation is to find out that you're not a person. You are, as you quoted from the book, we are boundless, empty, open awareness that has been impersoned. You know, from the moment you're born, you're lying there in the crib and there's, you know, these 
these great big faces with deep authoritative voices saying, hello, Tonio, coochie-coo, Tonio, you're so cute, Tonio. And, you know, after a while you start thinking, well, I guess I must be this Tonio thing <laughs> that they keep talking about. And, you know, that Tonio or Dean, that's, that's not us. That's just a sound. And so we get tagged. We get tagged with a name when we think that's it. And we get not only tagged, we get bagged. We get the impression that we are, you know, an ego wrapped up in a, in a bag of skin, that we are, as you say, the person. Now, interestingly, the word person comes from the Greek persona, which means mask, mask. So it's right there in the, in the word person and personality. You know, the joker hidden in that deck is this hint that that's a mask, that what we really are is, you know, just as you appear through the eye holes of a mask, we are the open, empty, and empty sounds kind of scary to Westerners. You know, the, it's, that's the translation of the word shunyata, but it's, it's, it's empty, luminous, luminous awareness that's looking through the eye holes of the person, of the body, of the identity as being a Dean or, or a Tonio. And that's not anything to take someone's word for. That's really what comes to be experienced in meditation. And it's, it's a great discovery because, oh, what I am here in this essence behind the eye holes is not old or young. It's not sick or healthy. It's not male or female. It's not American or Russian or black or white. It's, as my old teacher Maharishi said, it's just nothing, but there's something very good about it. This is where the happiness that I was looking for, that, that the sunflower was yearning for, that Gatsby was yearning for, this is where it's found within me, which is really good news because everything outside of me is unreliable. Everything outside of me keeps changing and going away. This, this is the thing that's, that's here all the time. Yep. And even though this book focuses pretty much exclusively on Western literature, you do throw in a wee bit of Lord Krishna speaking as the infinite, saying, by a small fraction of my being, I pervade and support this entire universe. Yeah, that's from the Bhagavad Gita, and I, I bring in material from the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and the Prajnaparamita Sutra and, and so forth, just to show the parallels. I mean, for example, my chapter on Macbeth, and I taught Macbeth for about 30 years, and you know, you keep coming back year after year teaching that text, and especially with, with something like Shakespeare, where there's just so much to it, you can just keep going deeper and deeper. And at one point I realized, oh, the opening scene of Macbeth, where the witches chant, fair is foul and foul is fair. You know, that's a real head scratcher. How can it be? How can opposites be equivalent? But then, you know, at one point I realized, wait, that sounds a whole lot like the key line in the Prajnaparamita Sutra, which is form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. There's the ultimate opposites. You know, form and emptiness, that's even kind of more absolute opposites than energy and matter. But what Einstein showed us was that, you know, E equals MC squared, energy and matter really are equivalent. They just kind of keep changing the way they, the way they dance. You know, if the, the stuff 
the one, the non-dual, which manifests sometimes as matter, manifests sometimes as energy. It just kind of speaking, of course, poetically, metaphorically here, it dances as energy, it dances as matter, it dances through these these transformations. And that this is what our life is is like, that the things that appear to be fair, they can, uh, you know, dance their way into being foul and, and vice versa. And if we pin all our hopes on saying, okay, if I can just murder Duncan so I can become the king of Scotland myself, that'll be fair, and then everything will be fine forever. No, watch out. No, because, you know, it's, it's, it's always going to flip around on you. Mm-hmm. So this would be a wonderful time for you to pick one of your favorite passages in literature that, that you could share with us. Yeah, sure. Let's go to Moby Dick. I had a grand time writing about Moby Dick, partly because, and I say this is the beginning of the chapter, through my whole career as a high school teacher, I faked it. I would tell my students how great Moby Dick was, but I had never really read it. So finally, when I wrote The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, it was like, okay, my karma had caught up with me, and I was going to have to read all 700 pages of this. Fortunately, it turned out that I was not a liar, that Moby Dick turned out to be as magnificent as I said it was, and, and more so, really, and also funnier and also weirder than I had suspected. So I want to read one of the weirdest passages from the book. And this one almost requires no Dharma commentary from me. It's so blatant. So here Ishmael, the narrator, has been telling us about an incident where the crew of the Pequod, the whaling ship that he's shipped out on, they've hunted down a sperm whale and slaughtered it, decapitated it. I mean, that part, which I'm not going to read, is really grisly. They decapitate the thing. And sperm whale is called that because it has this substance in its head called spermaceti, or sperm for short. And it's this warm, waxy substance which was used back in the 19th century for making candles. So as soon as it's drained out of the head of the whale and it's poured into these vats and it starts to cool immediately and coagulate into globules and the sailors have to sit down on the deck and knead this stuff to squeeze the globules out of it, keep it from coagulating. Okay, so that's setting the scene and here's the passage. After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, My fingers felt like eels and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. As I sat there at my ease, cross-legged on the deck, under a blue, tranquil sky, the ship under indolent sail and gliding so serenely along, as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues, woven almost within the hour, as they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence like fully ripe grapes their wine, as I snuffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow. 
While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. All the morning long, I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally as much as to say, oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. In thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. I love that passage. <laughs> that and is we, amazing. It is. It's phenomenal. And we certainly never read that when we read parts of Moby Dick in school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what's such great fun is because there's there's so much that the way that this stuff is taught in school usually kind of shortchanges the students, partly because the, you know, most teachers, and it's not their fault, they just haven't had the good fortune that I've had to, to have this Dharma exposure to be able to bring this other dimension to it. But also because, you know, I say in my introduction to the book, if it ain't fun, what's the point? And that was always my approach as a as a high school teacher, like Uncle John, my you know the the mentor who was the inspiration of my career, John Frisius. You know, you had to be having fun with it yourself, and then hopefully that would be contagious. So, for example, some of the the ways that I think this stuff is mistaught. Getting back to Macbeth, the conventional wisdom when you read Macbeth in in high school. You're always told, okay, this is a tragedy. The hero has to have a fatal flaw. And Macbeth's fatal flaw is ambition. He's so driven to become the king. But, you know, he's told at the beginning, the witches tell him, all hail Macbeth that shalt be king hereafter. So he's destined to be king. It's really not that he has an outsized ambition, but what he misses is the last word of their prediction that shall be king hereafter he's not willing to wait so his flaw is not really ambition it's impatience impatience and the thing is you know to me this literature and these dharma teachings they always have to be meaningful they've got to come home to our most kind of funky homely everyday experience so if you want to understand macbeth think about when you're driving when you're in traffic and you're in a hurry to get somewhere and the traffic's not moving. And you know that feeling of kind of, mm, we're here, <laughs> like, like mentally, 
and really viscerally, like you're trying to uh, urge the everything forward. You're trying to be in the next block, but you're always actually in this block. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know that feeling? That's it. If you under, if you can think of that feeling, then you understand Macbeth. That's what he's doing. That uh, that that straining forward, which never works. In fact, I I mentioned in that chapter the whole business of you know type A and type B personalities. That was discovered by a cardiologist, Dr. Meyer Friedman. And the, the way that he discovered it was after some years of running his office and having all these hypertension patients coming in to see him, the upholstery in his waiting room was starting to look shabby. So he brought in an upholsterer to take a look at it and give him an estimate for reupholstering it. And after looking at the stuff, the upholsterer shook his head. He said, this is extraordinary. I've never seen this before. People's couches and, and easy chairs always wear out first in the back. Yours have all worn out first on the leading edge. And that's when Dr. Friedman realized, oh, all these hypertensive types that I treat, they're always leaning forward in their seat. It's like, you know, and that was the birth of the theory of type A. Type A is always doing exactly what you were doing in traffic there, trying to be in the next block, the next thing. Whereas type B, which in Macbeth is represented by Banquo, he's laid back. He knows, no, don't don't get carried away with stuff. Don't try, don't try to be in the next thing. It's always this thing. And Macbeth ultimately sees that. He sees that at the end, but then it's too late. It's about three minutes before he gets his head chopped off. He realizes the curse of being caught up in trying to go into the future, into tomorrow instead of today. And that's his his famous soliloquy, which is so magnificent. I take a couple of pages to break this down. There's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. You know, that's so, so magnificent. And it's just such a magnificent analysis of the tragedy that most of us live, just trying to go from future to future to future, and we we miss the the present, and that's that's death. Mm-hmm. And even us B types are subject to that almost as much. Yeah, you know, without the maybe without the intensity, but you're absolutely right. You know, type B might just be seen as more. Kind of, you know, okay, we're the flaky hippies. We're the we're we're the passive, apathetic ones who still lack fulfillment. You know, there is no substitute for finding that kingdom of heaven within, and you can you can miss it by being passive, or you can miss it by being overly passive, or by being overly aggressive. Because either way, you're still dancing around on the surface. You got to dive inside. You don't gotta, but if you want to be fulfilled and stop, you know, being caught up in unfulfilled yearning, you you gotta. That's my experience anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty universal. Mm-hmm. So you also have poetry that you write about in this book. Are there any particular passages of poetry that that you would like to read for us? Oh, geez, yeah, there's so much. 
so much good stuff. You know, one thing I would always urge my students is to, if you, you find one poem that you fall in love with, memorize it. Memorize at least one poem. Because when you do that, then that's inside you. You know, anytime you look, there it is. So I'm convinced that even when you're not looking, it's there in some way. And, and whatever it was about it that made you fall in love with it, it's in there, you know, kind of like these, kind of a bad comparison, but, you know, these, these what are these radioactive seeds that they, that they implant in people to fight certain kinds of cancers. There's something, you know, once the poem is inside you, it's radiating its beauty, radiating its, its truth. And then also, you know, when you're sitting there in traffic, <laughs> instead of straining to be in the next block, you can recite the poem to yourself, whip out this thing of beauty. So one of the poems that I fell in love with early on, which I, I have a chapter about, is Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. And by the way, people, as you're listening to this, don't try to figure out what it means. That's not important. Just let yourself be, if you're not driving somewhere, close your eyes and just let yourself kind of trip out on the music of this. By the way, Coleridge made very clear, he wrote this while tripping on laudanum, which was a, a popular drug at the time. And he said this whole poem came to him in a vision and there was just all these swirling colors and images and the words and the images were one. So the whole thing just came through. So close your eyes if you're not driving and just trip out on the music, see what images evokes for you. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale, the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. 
The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight would win me that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. That was another one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is wild stuff. And in the book, you actually spend a few pages going through that, walking us through that. And I think I remember you even apologizing if it felt like you were being too analytical. And I just have to say that I loved the way you analyzed it and walked us through it because it opened it up in wonderful ways for me. Yeah, yeah, you know, th thank you. Um, yeah, it is such a visionary thing, but but you're right. You know, if as an English teacher, if I do my job right, and again, this is the thing I learned from my my mentor, my role model, John Frisius, is you unpack it first. In fact, he would read a poem in class like this aloud all the way through, and then he would always, it was a ritual for him, he would always say, all right, let's take our shoes off and run through it. And then through my whole 33 years of teaching, I could not explicate a poem without saying, all right, let's take our shoes off and run through it. And so we would do that and just break it down line by line, image by image, technique by technique, but then you put it back together again. So then when you read it again and just lose yourself in the music, it's that much richer. For example, in that last section where he says, a damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. Okay, now most of us, and I write about this in the chapter, most of us, when we hear that word damsel, the association is like a, you know, a fair damsel out of a, a fairy tale. And usually it's a picture where she's got long, you know, flaxen blonde hair. She's very fair complected. And then the next line, he says, it was an Abyssinian maid. Now, Abyssinia is an old name for Ethiopia. In other words, she's African, she's black. And so he's done a little trick on us here. He's flexing his poetic, he's flexing his poetic muscles. Like, look, look at the little magic trick I did. I used a word to evoke a form. This is called Nama Rupa in the Hindu philosophy, the power of the, the sound to evoke the form. So I use this word damsel to evoke for you the picture of this fair blonde girl. But guess what? Now I'm going to quickly evaporate that image and give you another one. It was an Abyssinian maid. She's black. 
So just that one little trick, and he's doing things like that all through the poem. And when it comes to rhyme and meter in poetry, could you first talk about the kind of neurological effect that that can have on our brain and our nervous system when it's done well, and then pick a poem that you think really evokes that experience? Mm, yeah. Of course, we live in an age of, you know, post Walt Whitman and post the beat poets like Allen Ginsberg, where we're used to poetry not rhyming, not having regular meter. And we know it can still be poetic. It can still have the magic of poetry, of, of the magic of Nama Rupa, of sounds evoking visions. But there is something about rhyme and meter. And as you say, what it, it does for brain function, what it does for the nervous system. And there's been, as I mentioned in the book, there's been research showing how, you know, there's this uptick in, in you know, the, the pleasure centers of the brain are, are stimulated by hearing traditional poetry, rhyming poetry. And it has to do with expectations being met. You know, when you hear a word, I think I, I, I cite, actually, this is a, an old TV commercial from, from when I was a little kid. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Okay, so, you know, that ain't great poetry, but we hear you'll wonder where the yellow went and our brain knows to expect something that rhymes and then we get Pepsodent. And then, so then we get this, this wave of, ah, it's like, you know, we've given the brain a cookie, good brain, good brain. And this is why advertisers use rhyming jingles so that we will associate that wave of well-being, that wave of positive brain function with the toothpaste that they're trying to sell us. So from the lowest kind of rhyming verse like that, all the way up to you know, something something magnificent like John Donne, who is one of my favorites, and I have a chapter on John Donne. He has this magnificent poem that he apparently wrote when he had to leave his wife behind. He was writing, he, he was a contemporary of Shakespeare's, and he had to leave England, go to Europe, and, you know, not know when he was going to see his wife again. So he wrote this poem called A Valediction Forbidding Mourning. A valediction, a, a farewell, telling her not to mourn, not to grieve. And it starts, as virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say no. So let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods nor sigh tempests move, Twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Okay, now, what's the image there? As virtuous men pass mildly away. Now, this was the belief that a good Christian man or woman whose soul was at peace, they would have a mild death. And in fact, even without the religious framework, you know, if you ask hospice nurses about this, they'll tell you, yeah, people who are at peace tend to die peacefully. So what does he say? As, as virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now and some say no. In other words, 
the dying process for a person who is at peace is so mild and gentle and gradual and incremental that it's very hard to pinpoint the exact moment when their breath ceases because it just becomes less and less and less and less and less and less and less. And less. Now, interestingly enough, as I point out, this is exactly what happens when we meditate. This has been measured in many times in physiology labs that our breathing becomes less and less and less until it becomes almost imperceptible. In fact, meditation is a lot like dying. It's just, you know, it, it's not as it's not a one-way ticket, but it's really good practice for dying. By the way, just in case you ever have to die, Tonio, I'm sure it'll never happen to you, but just in case I'm wrong, you know, I think about people who who go into death without ever having experienced just letting everything settle down, letting the physiologically, letting the breath and the heart rate and everything settle down and just kind of everything going away. This is what happens when you meditate. Everything goes away. You settle into that inner place of just nothing but something very good about it. And that's exactly parallel to what happens when when you die. So meditation is really good preparation for dying as, as well as for living. So anyway, here's done. Aside from the content of it, look at how he uses rhyme and meter. As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now. And some say, no. So let us melt. That's such a beautiful word there, right? As a meditator, I'm very familiar with the experience of melting that's exactly what happens you just you just all your engagement with the outer world your engagement with thinking and feeling and acting all the stories we're caught up with it all just melts away it melts into that that nothing but something very good about it that that kingdom of heaven within so let us melt and make no noise no tear floods nor sigh tempests move. You know, all the other poets of the day, Elizabethan poets, were all writing about, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to heave. It's so hard to, to leave you. I'm going to heave tempests of sighs and floods of tears. So Dunn is playing off of that saying, no, 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 no. That's for the, you know, that that's for the rabble. We're special. Twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. So it's as if, okay, we're high priests of this inner religion of love and to tell the laity, in other words, the layman, the uninitiated, to let them see our grief, to tell the laity of our love would be profanation, it would make it profane. This love is something sacred. That's just the first two stanzas of this poem, it goes on. I'm doing this from memory, by the way, this is another one I memorized early and boy, this, it's made my life richer. Your reading of that and talking about that experience in meditation and, and the breath with dying reminded me of my breathing meditation this morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the traditional teachings are full of this understanding, the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead, 
the Bardo Todal, which is the, the manual for dying in the Tibetan Buddhist, the Vajrayana tradition, you know, basically it's, again, it's the same, the instructions for dying are the same as the instructions for meditating. And in my chapter on Emily Dickinson, which is possibly my favorite chapter in the book, you know, she wrote a whole lot about dying. She lost, I think, at the age of 14, just in one year, she had something like five people very close to her all die. Mostly people in, in 19th century, early 19th century, the New England were dying of consumption, tuberculosis. And so she spent a lot of time really contemplating death. And she's got this one poem. We don't have time. I actually have to go in about two, three minutes here. But she has this one poem that starts off with the experience of being in a funeral. And she goes through the whole experience of dying and the passage, what the Tibetans call going through the bardo, the transitional zone after dying, the process of dying and then what happens next. And she intuits, without her, again, ever having been exposed to these Eastern texts, she just experientially intuits the whole thing. It's the poem, if you want to look it up, it's it's the poem that starts, I felt a funeral in my brain, right? And there it is right there in the first line, I felt a funeral in my brain. She she intuited within her own mind, within her own consciousness, intuited the whole process. And, and not just I saw it, I felt it, you know, so deeply, viscerally experienced. So, you know, she was just about as brilliant as it gets. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, really, uh, just pleasure, pleasure, pleasure all the way. Thank you for having me, Tonio. So my guest has been Dean Slider. He's a literature professor, meditation teacher, and the author of numerous books. And his latest book, which we've been talking about, is The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Again, Dean, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, and one more thing, if I may, I want to let your listeners know that I have a website. It's deanslider.com, S-L-U-Y-T-E-R, S-L-U-Y-T-E-R, deanslider.com, and a YouTube channel. And I offer for free, open to everyone, Zoom meditation sessions a couple of times a week. In fact, that's why I have to get off now. I've got a, a meditation session coming up where I guide people in this kind of natural, effortless meditation that that I've been talking about. So if people go to my website, they can get on my my mailing list to receive the invitations for those meditations. And on my YouTube channel, I've got a lot of sessions archived there. So you can watch those anytime and and be guided in the meditation. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Matthew Shepard is a member of the Circe's Society. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including Attracting Native Pollinators and Gardening for Butterflies. And today we're talking about a book put out by the Circe's Society, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees, Providing a Healthy Habitat to Help Pollinators Thrive. To begin with, what is the Circe Society and their mission? The Circe Society is a non-profit organization. We have about 9,000, 10,000 members scattered across North America and some other countries. We are a conservation organization, and our focus is on protecting insects and other invertebrates. They are the, the basis of the diversity of life and support so many other things, and so we focus on protecting them. Um, We've been around for 45 years now, and our namesake is the Xerxes Blue Butterfly that used to live on the area around San Francisco Peninsula. But as that city expanded, it disappeared, and it was one of the first insects recorded to have gone extinct in North America because of human activity. So the 100 Plants to Feed the Bees opens by talking about the work of Edith Patch, Frank Chapman Pallet, mm -hmm. and Eva Crane. Who were they? and what was so significant about their work. Edith Patch is one of those remarkable people who was ahead of her time in so many different ways. She was a, a scientist when not many people were scientists back in the late 1800s. She was an entomologist when study of insects and bugs was considered a kind of a, a hobby or pastime. And she also became the head of a university department, and that led her, and by the 1930s, she became the first female president of the Entomological Society of America. But one of the things that makes her most relevant to the work that Xerxes Society does is even back then, she was becoming conscious of the impact of pesticides upon insects and how the loss of, of habitat was beginning to reduce insect populations. So... She was promoting the idea that if you want to have insects, and insects bring so many benefits from pollination and pest control and so many others, that we really needed to have the right flowers and the right plants in our landscape. Um, Frank Pellet is probably best known as one of the very early pollinator gardeners, but he was actually stopping and thinking about what he could do in, in his home plot supporting bees. And then the third person you mentioned, Ava Crane, she was studying honeybees, and in particular the nutrition of honeybees. And so she was one of the people who began to realize that, wow, if you just put honeybees out on a farm where any food is 100 acres of crop, then they actually won't be very healthy because they need a much more diverse diet. If you fed me on French fries for a month, I would not be very healthy at the end of it. And that's the same with bees. They really do need a, a diverse range of flowers to feed on. So how important are bees and other pollinators in our world, and especially to us as human beings? Wow. Bees and pollinators are just an essential component of our environment. We talk about pollinators and pollination, and just to be clear, that what that means is that flowers, they have pollen, and the pollen needs to move from one flower to another to fertilize the flower so that that plant can produce seed and produce fruit and have another generation. Um, and the bees, you know, butterflies and flies and some other insects, are moving that pollen from one flower to another. So without this activity, the flowers would not be able to reproduce. And what that means for us as people is that the work of pollinators 
touches our lives every day in so many different ways, from the cotton sheets that we sleep on that come from a bee-pollinated cotton plant through to the fruits, the apples, the pears, whatever we eat at breakfast time. Um, and it carries on through the day like that. And you could say that they help define our seasons from the springtime meadows to the berry picking that we do in the summer through to the pumpkins that we carve at Halloween and make pies from at Thanksgiving. I live up in northern New England in a rural area, and many of the people around here have vegetable and flower gardens around their homes, and there are lots of small farms around here. And one of the great delights of summer for me is, and in particular because I live in the woods, I marvel at watching the bumblebees pollinating my tomatoes and blueberry bushes. I marvel how they find my plants in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bees and plants have evolved over the aeons in an incredible way. 140 million years ago, there were no bees, really. The plants had to find other ways. And then since then, bees and other insects started appearing. And, and together, they evolved this incredible relationship so that the flowers provide bees with nectar and allow them to take some pollen back to their nest to feed their offspring. But also, by doing that, some of the pollen falls off and pollinates the next flower. And the bees can find the flowers thanks to things such as the color of the flower. Bees have really good color vision but some colors attract them more than others. So white and yellow and blue-purple are are really attractive colors. But bees also can see ultraviolet, which we don't see. And a lot of flowers have this shimmering ultraviolet color to it that just sparkles in the sunshine and draws bees in from a long way away. And then there are other things like scent. Most flowers attracted to bees have a sweet scent, something that we would actually enjoy. Whereas if you're a flower that is pollinated by flies, for example. Often those flies are attracted to nasty-smelling things, and so the flowers smell pretty nasty to us. So the purpose of this book is to help people understand how we can actually help bees and other pollinators to thrive in our environment. So what are some of the things that we need to understand about bees that can help us to better help these little buzzy critters thrive and actually help us as well. Sure. Bees need flowers. This is what they feed on. The adult bee will be drinking the nectar. That's the high-energy flight fuel that allows them to keep moving around from flower to flower and taking the food back to their nest. They also collect the pollen, and that goes back to the nest, which feeds their offspring in the nest. And, you know, the the things that we can do at the most basic level, we, we can plant flowers because if there are no flowers, then bees will have nothing to feed on. And it doesn't need a big patch of land. Even if you've got a few planters on your deck, then you can grow pollinator-friendly plants in those planters. And you'll not only sit there enjoying the scent and the sight of those flowers, but you'll also be able to enjoy the, the activity and the beauty of the bees themselves. If you've got an acre of suburbia that that you tend, that's fantastic. If you've got a farm and you can plant flowering hedgerows or a meadow along the edge of a creek, for example, there are just lots and lots of ways in which we can bring flowers back into the, the landscape. And one of the things in the book that I learned for the first time is that bees have quite a more diverse nutritional range of needs than I knew previously, that they need protein and fat content of pollen of different flowers, that they actually need 
a variety of flowering plants to have a balanced and healthy nutritional habitat to thrive in. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, for the adult, they're only really taking the energy from nectar, but it is the pollen is this fantastic little nugget of protein and amino acids and all sorts of other good stuff that feeds and sustains the larvae back in the nest and allows them to, to develop and grow and become the next generation of adult bees. So there is this essential requirement that bees have for flowers. So you say that the adult bees live on nectar, but there's different Mm -hmm. sugar contents of the nectar of different plants. Does that make much of a difference for them? Um, The sugar content, most bees don't really mind what the sugar content is. Some plants, the nectar is more watery or it's thicker, and bees, if you start getting very geeky about bees, you find that bees have different lengths of tongue, and this means that they can or can't reach into a flower to reach the nectar. I mean, like many bumblebees have a very long tongue, and it's it's shaped a bit like a drinking straw, and they have to be able to suck the nectar up. So, you know, some bumblebees, for example, can only really feed from flowers that have a relatively deep throats to the flower, like a um, like a penstemon, for example. They can get all the way in, and they also need nectar that is fairly watery so they can suck it up and and drink it, whereas other bees will be able to survive on thicker nectar because their tongue is a different shape and dimension. And so by putting a diversity of flowers into your landscape, you can provide the specific needs of a much wider range of, of bees. And there are hundreds of thousands of species of bees in North America. Most areas will probably find 100 or more species of bees if you were to spend the time sitting around and looking and identifying them. And given that diversity of bees, by putting a diversity of flowers into your garden, your park, or or wherever you have space, you can be supporting the widest range of bees. In that sense, are all bees beneficials? Yeah, I I would say all bees are beneficial. Some bees have a very particular relationship with a certain flower. So there's a group of bees called squash bees, and they only collect pollen from squash flowers. So you know, squash and pumpkins and zucchini and so on. And so if you don't have those flowers, you won't have those bees. But there are other bees like sweat bees and some of the bumblebees that can collect nectar and pollen from a very wide range of flowers. But some of these things we we don't always know the exact details of. If you lose one bee or one flower, it may not seem much, but they are all connected. And so the flower that's supporting that bee if that flower disappears, then maybe there won't be enough flowers to support that bee, and you know there might be other flowers that are relying upon that bee. That will, then the bee will gradually disappear. Yeah, it's fascinating how we're really talking about a, a very broad, interconnected and interdependent relationship that all all of these yeah. creatures and and we share in our environment. Mm-hmm. And I'd say most people probably, when they think of bees, they think of honey and the possibility of getting stung by them. And you say that there's thousands of different types of bees. Mm-hmm. Are honeybees a small percentage of the population of bees? Honeybees are, are just one species. One and species the, alone. Yeah, just, just one, one species alone. And they're very unusual bees because they do make honey, and they do live in a, in a hive with thousands of other bees, and they make honeycomb. And they have the queen and the worker cast. And they're fascinating insects. But they are very unusual as bees because the majority of bees are solitary. So one female bee will make her own nest. 
she does all the work on that nest, and she may only lay 20 or 30 eggs in her lifetime. And then her life is done, and, and she dies, and her nest remains with the larvae and the pupae in the nest. They will remain dormant until the following year. Where do most of the other bees lay their nests, and what is their habitat outside of the honeybees that we're so familiar with? Yeah, most bees, they, the solitary bees, a lot of them actually nest in the ground. One bee will just dig a little narrow tunnel, and then off that tunnel create a few brood cells into which they bring the nectar and pollen and lay an egg and seal it, and that's where their larvae, their offspring, will develop. And then that some other bees are colonial, so bumblebees, for example, do make a very small nest with just a, a couple of hundred individuals in it, and you know they might need a cavity that's six or eight inches inside. And then you also just find that these nests to be under untidy places, maybe a brush pile or something similar. And so a nice bit of chaos in your garden is always good to have. We don't necessarily want everything to be pristine and mulched with bark chips or perfectly mown, neatly trimmed. You know, it's good to have some untidy areas where, where the bare ground can survive and be accessible and where bumblebees and others have the brush piles and such like they can nest in. So if we wanted to create the most diverse habitat for all kinds of pollinators and all kinds of bees, what would you suggest, what would be the different elements that we should think about? Because I I noticed from reading this book that there's a lot of different types of flowers which attract different types of bees. Bumblebees, for example, as, as you said, have long tongues. And they actually, if you look, watch them closely, you can see that they land on a flower, and they will actually use their legs, arms to pry it open and to crawl in. So they actually mm-hmm. walk around and move around a bit like we do or, or other animals, whereas others just land on like flower button and button type flowers. And, mm-hmm. and then there's flowers that are somewhere in between. What? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I say that this. You touch there upon just this incredible diversity of bees, the different sizes of them, the fact that bumblebees are big enough and strong enough to push their way in between tightly fitting petals, and others can't do that because they're too small or just not strong enough. And so the the best way to address that issue is to try and have a diversity of flowers in your garden or your landscape so that you are providing the range of flowers that is accessible to a wide range of, of bees of different shapes and sizes. You ideally want to try and have flowers in bloom from, you know, when when the winter ends to the end of fall, because there are bees such as mining bees and, and early emerging bumblebees that will come up before the end of winter and be looking for things to feed on, and other bees that will linger all the way through the summer. So, you know, from the perspective of trying to get the flowers, you want to try and have this diversity of, of flower shapes and, and species bloom over a long time. If you can also try and have nesting sites in your garden as well, then that that will be fantastic and provide the bees with everything they need. So talk about the different kinds of nesting sites that we could be helping to provide for them. Yeah, in some cases you can actually make wooden blocks. A lot of places now sell mason bee blocks. I mean, mean, they're great. They actually do work, and you will find mason bees and and other bees that will nest in them, and that's just a piece of wood, maybe an old piece of firewood, or all sorts of things, as long as it's got holes drilled in at the right diameter. But beyond that, you can also just try and make sure that the natural sites are there. So if you have room to leave an old tree to die and develop into a snag, then that'll be fantastic. If you can make sure that there is bare ground 
for the ground nesting bees so they can access the dirt and will have somewhere to dig their little tunnels and then that's another fantastic thing. And bumblebees, they really like old abandoned mouse nests and rodent nests which are already warm and, uh, and snug and lined with fur. And so if you've got kind of tumble down untidy places where you might tolerate a few mice nesting and then you're going to have some perfect bumblebee sites. So people who are afraid of being stung by bees, what should they understand about bees in terms of aggression or a bee's tendency to sting a person? Yeah, a huge majority of bees really pose little or no threat to people. And there are some bees that actually they have a stinger, but the stinger is just too weak to even penetrate our skin. So that's not a problem at all. There's one school in Portland, Oregon, that has adopted ground-nesting bees on their school grounds as their school mascot, and they call them the tickle bees because each spring these bees appear and the kids catch them and play with them, and they just tickle. That's all they do when they kind of wriggle around on your hand. But there are some people who stinging is a real health risk. If you are one of those people who suffer from anaphylactic shock, then that's a serious risk, and, and you're going to be taking the precautions that you need to take. But other people, bees really don't provide a threat especially when they're on flowers. I mean, if they're on flowers, you can get right up close to them. And as long as you don't try and grab that bumblebee in your hand, then it's not going to feel threatened by you. And if it does, it'll just fly away. Yeah, I've noticed that I actually do flower gardening for a living. And I've noticed that I can just work right beside bees and bumblebees pretty freely. And they don't seem to mind me. It seems to be yeah. on, only the hummingbirds that are upset by my <laughs> presence. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there are some bees, um, the male carpenter bees, for example, that will try and chase you away, but male bees don't have a stinger at all. And so the carpenter bees will actually kind of fly right in front of your face and try and chase you off. And that's just a show of aggression. And it's like all bark and no bite. Mm. Um, and that's how it is with the, with the male bees. They just don't have a stinger. Uh-huh much like the hummingbirds, which will buzz you and try and scare you off. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's right. They're just trying to make themselves look as big as possible. Right, and noisy. and So I'm curious, Mm -hmm. what are are some of the most surprising things that you've learned about bees in your time of studying them? I I think the first thing that shocked me was just how many species and different types there were. I mean, I was working in conservation for quite a few years, you know, and I, I thought I knew wildlife. And then I remember discovering that these bees, and they weren't bumblebees and weren't honeybees, and they had all sorts of amazing bees, and they had these unexpected places where they nested. And then when I started spending more time with them, I just, I, I'm always entranced by the beauty of the bees. They come in such a range of colors. You know, there are bees that look like an emerald jewel. They're just metallic green. There are others that have flecks of gold on them. And then, you know, they have orange hairs or golden yellow hairs. And just, they're just a, an astonishingly beautiful thing. And I, I admit, I, I can geek out on bees all day because I'm completely entranced by them. They're just amazing. And lots of different sizes of them as well. Yeah. The large carpenter bees and the bumblebees are about as big as they get. And they can be you know, an inch or an inch and a quarter long, maybe, and a really big one. And then the smallest ones will be a twelfth of an inch long, maybe. Just these really tiny little things that most people don't even notice flying around. And I've even seen some fairly small bumblebees. I mean, they're radically small compared to the large bumblebees. 
But in form, they look, and color, they look very, very much like bumblebees. So, and I've, I've wondered about those. Yeah, probably what that is, is with bumblebees, the only bees that survive the winter are queens. And so at the end of winter and into spring, the queens start emerging to found a new colony. And the first generation of bees that comes from that new nest are typically very small, simply because there's only the queen supplying the food, and there's not much in the way of bloom around at that early in the year. And so those bees don't get much nutrition. And so when they emerge, they're just small. And they can be half the size of the queen. I mean, and if you think of a big, round, fat bumblebee, and then you have another one that's only half as long, you realize that it really is a tiny bee in comparison. And then over the summer, the bumblebee nest will have three or four more generations. And each generation has more bees and they're bigger because they've got more workers to collect the flower and there's just a greater abundance of bloom available as you pass through the summer. So let's finish up on pesticides and the effects that pesticides have and how concerned we should be about using pesticides. The thing that's really brought pesticides forward as an issue has been a class of pesticides and insecticides called neonicotinoids. And they have, over the last 20 years, become probably the most widespread group of insecticides. And the thing that marks them out as being a particular risk to bees is that they are described as systemic insecticides. So what that means is when you apply them, it doesn't just coat the outside of the plant. It actually gets absorbed into the plant and into the tissues of that plant. And then eventually it comes out in the nectar and the pollen. And it might only be a minuscule amount in each pollen grain or each sip of nectar, but that does accumulate in the bee. And so these are just everywhere you go. They're applied to crops and they're also applied to garden plants as well. Often the nursery growing the plant has treated the plant because if you were to walk into a grocery store, example, and to go and buy an apple, you're less likely to pick the apple off the shelf that looks bruised or got a blemish on it. And it's the same with garden plants. The stores don't want their plants to look blemished because most people won't take those. And so a lot of these insecticides are used for cosmetic reasons rather than necessarily pest control reasons. And now we find ourselves in a situation where you're trying to do the right thing and you want to have a nice garden and you're planting plants and they're already arriving with insecticides in them. So one way of overcoming that is you can talk to the plant store and ask them, you know, have these plants been treated and what have they been treated with? And increasingly, there are more and more stores, even some of the big national chains, they no longer use these insecticides on their plant stock because it's considered such a problem. When you then you're left with this issue of, oh, wow, how do I now control what we consider to be the pest species? There are some less harmful insecticides that you can apply. If you have a real problem species, you can, can treat that species with some accuracy, but not in a way where the pesticides will linger for weeks or months after application, which is just enough to deal with your pest species. You also, just by creating a garden that is full of a diversity of flowers, you're attracting in much more than just bees and butterflies. You're also getting a a whole community of other insects, and amongst those, you will find the predator beetles, flies, some wasps that just would be fantastic control of the species you don't want. It's been wonderful talking to you about this. It's a fascinating topic, and they're such beautiful creatures. And thank you so much. No, you're very welcome. Thank you.
That was Matthew Shepard. He is a member of the Circe's Society. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including Attracting Native Pollinators and Gardening for Butterflies. And today we were talking about a book put out by the Circe Society, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees, Providing a Healthy Habitat to Help Pollinators Thrive. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs> <laughs>